Welcome to The Mink and the Monk, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is the uh, legendary Bill Ware, um, who I'm very glad was uh, down to join us for the podcast today. And I'm astounded the more I look online at all the things you've done. You've been a um, a very, very... Uh, uh, prolific sideman in many genres um and you've done film scoring you've done uh you know orchestral works uh very historically important jazz and hip-hop records um many records of your own and uh again thank you for being here today will yeah it's nice to be (laughs) um in the mountains yeah um yeah i was uh i saw that you were from around here and it's there's it's tough to get people out to kerhonks in new york sometimes for an interview so we were very fortunate that you were uh close by and uh willing to talk with us and uh you you seem just so busy so i don't know how you fit in the schedule i was listening to your albums on apple music and a lot of them say 2022 on them have you been re-releasing old stuff or did you just put out like four albums last year no well actually i had um from 2006 or so no two even earlier than that 2003 um i started recording stuff at home and writing stuff and then right around that time i lost one of my record deals with the record label eight ball they kind of folded and groove collective i left that band <clears throat> i stopped recording with them so um i just had started recording all my own stuff and then uh slowly through the years fast forward to yeah to like 2020 2022 i had amassed about I don't know, maybe 14 or 15 CDs worth of music. Wow. <laughs> so I just started. And then um, 2016, uh, when Trump got elected, I thought, oh, man, this is going to be a rough four years. So I'm going to need a project to distract me from, from the insanity. So I decided I was going to write 2,000 songs. And... Uh, um, so I started that, and um, right around that time, I also started this weird mystery illness that I had started. And um, so I, I started writing songs, and I wrote like the first two, and I set up this whole criterion of uh, I'm gonna write songs that are in my wheelhouse in terms of playing, because I usually write music that's way too hard for me <laughs> to like raise my own level. <clears throat> but and I might do something different. So I'm gonna write stuff that's like right in my wheelhouse and I made all these criteria like, okay, I'm gonna write basically for like a vibraphone, piano, quartet, basically. And then um, I'm gonna write, like I have to finish a whole demo and have the chart, a lead sheet, of the chart and have the complete demo, all four, all four pieces, four or five pieces 
in a completed demo. So that was the criteria. So I did couple and it took me the first couple of songs cooked me two days. And then I figured out, okay, if I'm gonna write a thousand songs in four years, that's 250 songs a year. <laughs> and, and when I did all the math, I was like, I'll be working doing this. It takes me about n nine hours to complete. So I figured I think I had 20 days off for the year. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And I got busy and I got about, it took me, uh, I think a year, the first year I, I wrote about 200, first year and, and maybe it was about 14 months, I wrote about 200, just over 200 songs. And I was like, wow. And I had a stack of papers, like six inches. Yeah. <laughs> so that, if I'm doing the math, that's about every two days you're writing a, a, a song? Is that? Yeah, about, by the time, wow. by the end, I had it down for about day and a day and a third to write a full <clears throat> song, have the um, completed demo, just just of the head. It's mostly jazz songs, just of the head, and uh, that was the demo. So each demo was like you know thirty seconds, whatever. Oh, I got you. So so it's just the head, mm -hmm. but all finished, like completed. You know, with the whole arrangement and everything. So um, took about yeah. By the end, I was down to about a day and a third, and it was it was it was quite um, quite an experience. Just forcing yourself to you know write and what surprised me was i was expecting you know i have a thousand songs i'll be lucky of like 200 ever good you know you figure spitting them out like that like a machine but what i found is i'm a weird guy so <laughs> i don't like to if you're going to work on something all day it's got to be good otherwise you're going to lose interest after an hour you're going to be like look so i didn't write any schlock every every tune i really put my heart into and i and I can't, and I surprised myself like finding avenues to go down. Like, like I would take a traditional jazz song like John Coltrane's Moments Notice, and then I would do what I call uh, uh, build a better, build a better, build a better car. You know, you're like, okay, I'm gonna take this song, figure out what makes it what it is, and then see if I can come out with a better version. I say better, but you know, so subjective. Um, just another, you know, like an alternate version. This is really cool. Like moments notice. Da 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 ba ba da ba ba da ba da ba. Okay, what makes this song is those is that it's really a nice drummer's kind of thing. It's got all those kicks and hits. So I wanted to keep that element, and then it has that little like the little perfect little break that sets up the solo and it sets up the head to come back or so I wanted to keep that so I pick elements out of the tune and then I'm gonna make a better mo better blues I'm gonna make it a, somehow make it my own so then I changed the harmony changed the melody and I came up with a new song <clears throat> we're gonna play it this Saturday um, with uh, great drummers in town um, from he lives in Europe Steve Williams uh, I guess one of his top gigs plays with uh, Shirley Horn. Mm -hmm. And uh, he sat in with my quartet a couple of weeks back when I did. Uh, Matt Dar Garrity has a. Yeah, yeah. You know, Matt Garrity, yeah, yeah he has. The Barnstock. Barnstock, right? yeah. Yep. He does a jazz stock there at his house, Barnstock. And uh, 
And uh, I did one of those concerts, and Steve was there. He sat in. He said, man, I want to play with you. And I said, I want to play with you, too. So next time he was in town, it was just a Saturday. He's going to be around. So we organized a gig really quick. And uh, Where are you playing on Saturday? Um, Not that this will be out by then. but Yeah, it won't be out. It's in uh, Green Lake, Greenwood Lake, I think. But I don't know the name of the venue. Okay. It's through the... Uh, 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 is it the Rockland County, Hudson County Jazz? So it's out, it's near Westchester kind yeah. of thing? Okay. You know, this is the thing. When you, we don't manage your affairs anymore, you don't know anything. I just know 12 things now. Sounds C, relaxing. I C wish. sharp, D, <laughs> D sharp, E. And my manager, wife, lawyer, driver, um, laundress, cook, <laughs> chef, <laughs> life coach. She does everything else. Um so back on the topic of your, of your compositions like okay. um you're, you're saying how you, you approach coming up with like a like a a thing about other tunes that you like to add in to keep it fresh i feel like you get on so many standards gigs i mean I, i'm younger i'm i'm you know i'm playing up in like the local capital district scene and there's definitely some people that you play with especially in a, in a smaller scene who it feels like they're just calling the standards and doing them all the same way like oh everyone gets a solo and then it's trade fours and everything it just feels like you know a lot of 32 bar tunes and your tunes what i appreciate is everything i listened to it felt like you were trying to add those extra little character bits to the composition so that there's there's a form that has you know a melody to itself and like the hits and the rhythm and it's it's very hip and fresh yeah. improvisational music and I, I i appreciate that i can hear it in the, what you put into the compositions is that something that when you decided to write the, all those tunes was that a new thing for you or have you been writing for uh you know most of your career well yeah that's the thing um like some of my friends like oh bill you're you're the greatest vibe from player uh, i don't i don't i you know, I, I saw an interview once with Wes Montgomery, <clears throat> or heard an interview, it was a radio interview, with Wes Montgomery, and he was saying how he doesn't consider himself a great guitar player. He loves music, he expresses his music through the guitar, but he said, if you want to hear a great guitar player, you got to listen to this guy. <laughs> he said, um, his name, Nelson Simmons from Montreal, Canada. He's the greatest guitarist I ever heard. I never, I like, I never heard, heard of the guy. Yeah. So I looked him up, and sure enough, this guy, I, there was a few U2s. He didn't record. He recorded like two records, I think, maybe, that I could find. And there's some video of him. He mostly did live gigs. His brother, I think, owned a club, so he played there a lot. Hmm. I'll and, have to check uh, him. I'll have to look that up. Look this guy up because he would play bebop lines, right? At, at tempo, up tempo, but with chords. He would play the lines and harmonize Harmon every note. Line. Harmonize yeah. every note of the line. With chords. I was like, no wonder why West Montgomery was blown away. Man, this guy is ridiculous. But um, I'm kind of a similar way. I am self taught in vibes, although I had lots of instruction from a lot of great great vibraphonist Wilson Mormon, uh, Jay Hogard, uh, uh, Milt Jackson came by and saw me play it. He did, he's a very shy guy. He, he said about four words the whole time. But um, 
watched him play for years, you know, studied his playing and Gary Burton. And so had a lot of influx from, from a lot of people, but basically I'm kind of, kind of self-taught. I took a year of marimba lessons to learn articulation from a classical guy. But, um, but I, I express myself for the vibes, but I think mainly I would consider my, my, my strength is as a composer. Yeah. Um, so I, I never really liked where, where all my friends were playing along with records and copying, you know, what they heard in records and playing a lot of songs. I, I liked constructing stuff. You know? Almost like a producer. Yeah, like, I really like, liked constructing music. Like I love just putting it together, my own things, you know, even when I, <laughs> much to my classical <clears throat> conductors <clears throat> excuse me chagrin <laughs> even in orchestra I would analyze the music and put the chords in <laughs> on the orchestral pieces so that when I had rests I could still play so I'm like all oh, these rests I don't yeah. want to rest I want to play <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. so in the rest I would fill in the chords and I would come up with parts <laughs> new you parts miming to... bass yeah I, well I played bass in orchestra and percussion in uh, orchestra and in the band because there weren't enough bass players so i learned bass because the orchestra needed more bass players awesome yeah i'm a bassist i didn't even know you you <laughs> yeah, played bass yeah <laughs> so yeah mostly um when i was uh in new jersey uh i grew up you know, in jersey um i grew up mostly i was born in east orange but i uh moved to uh, maplewood in 66 and i grew up in maplewood new jersey so um uh but i i started on piano and i just played by ear because we had two pianos my dad was a kind of a hoarder <laughs> depression child you know and yeah, don't, uh, doesn't throw anything, out anything yeah no anything <laughs> that you know hey bill you know i got this so yeah i'll take it yeah. <laughs> and then he had a friend who owned a junkyard oh we were in trouble then <laughs> we had two pool tables a ping pong table even though our basement was like you know way smaller like you know and it had all kinds of like poles and 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 crooked floor but we still got that pool table in there you know you just uh, you know you had a shot you had to go kind of like this the stick <laughs> up in the air sometimes because the wall was right there and it was an obstacle course but we had when we had two pianos <clears throat> and my sister was taking lessons in the school system eighth grade you start lessons you know so uh um she started lessons and she was, you know, learning and she would learn the Moonlight Serenade, you know, do, 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 you know, that rock. Oh, that, that, Everybody that, learns to be on a piano. Dun, dun, dun. It's like in D flat minor, too, I think. Oh, Moonlight it's, Sonata. Moonlight Sonata. Yeah, Beethoven. Yes. Yeah, Beethoven, yeah. that's yeah. right. So <laughs> I would play that, too. I would just learn everything she learned, but by ear because I couldn't read music yet. So I was pretty well versed in a piano, especially all the dark keys. I was like Stevie Wonder because <laughs> I found I just knew music by the patterns on the keyboard. Yeah, mm -hmm. I didn't know any names of the notes, and it was easier to know the patterns on the black keys. So I learned boogie woogie and blues, everything in F sharp. <laughs> and yeah, I always wondered that if it was a if it was a shape thing for she because thing. everything is in those really yeah the odd, black keys. Yeah. Um, they they're easy to feel, you know, and see, and um, so uh, memorizing the patterns, and then then. Then when I took, then eighth grade, turned eight, um, it was time to pick your instrument. 
of course I picked the noisiest thing, drums. <laughs> and, uh, and then when I turned nine, that's when the orchestral teacher approached me and she took my hand. She was like, oh, look at your hand. That is a hand made for bass players. <laughs> and I went home like this. I, Sounds like you got me too by your music Mrs. teacher. Brown. She, <laughs> she, she said I have a hand for face flare. And so I took up the band. Of course, uh, the, the three guys who were seniors had just graduated. You know, yeah. I didn't find that out until years later. Like, oh, she suckered me in. <laughs> but um, so, but I'm glad I did. My dad encouraged. He was a musician also. So it wasn't whether you were going to play an instrument. It was which instrument because everybody had to play. My sister played the flute. One sister played the clarinet. My mother tried to play the piano, although she had absolutely no rhythm. <laughs> and my dad's saxophone player. So, um, so then, but I always like the first thing I learned was improvising, and I'm glad that I did that. So, you know, the first year was spent just just doing my own thing, improvising, and I used to keep time for my sisters. Um, uh, on a, um, with two pencils on a clarinet case, and that was my first <laughs> my first drum experience. Then I graduated to like you know I gotta have a cymbal so that you know you get a pot top, ding there's your cymbal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I had a whole kit made out of, out of kitchen utensils, and uh, that was my first kit. And then I was like I like that, so I, I went to drums. So that's I played piano, bass, and drums. But growing up in New Jersey. Yeah, it's a very standard, like you're talking about the standard, you know, this is very standard way that that post-World War II musicians play, you know, and you have these standard things. And uh, I, uh, I didn't really fit in that mold, but nobody needs a vibraphone player in that mold. So well, that you, the, that's, that's a tough place to get Everybody needs a bass player. So <laughs> I worked playing bass, you know, oh, okay. from up till like 1987. Uh, Starting, like when? How old were you when you started gigging? I started gigging at, not, at age nine. <laughs> they started, they had these community uh, shows in my town. And um, they're like Broadway plays they oh, did, you know, and these community uh, production companies maplewood players i think and the south orange had so e it's two towns that share one school system south orange and maplewood so they both had their different play groups all you know amateur actors and mm -hmm. they would do a show so i would do both of those shows and then my sister also was involved in the essex county music school a program and uh, I also did shows there so I did a lot of these musical shows starting at age nine I remember my first yeah you're right some things I remember really well <laughs> that I remember I got paid uh, a $25 gift certificate and ten dollars cash so you were making more than that the average musician today <laughs> <laughs> that was my first gig i never forget i was just so happy and i think my second paid gig all the other ones most of them weren't paid um uh and my second paying gig i got paid fifteen dollars and a pizza <laughs> we played a concert with my rock band. Oof, I would uh, I would hate to hear tapes of that because I'm sure it was horrible. But um, but how was the paid. pizza? The pizza, 
was pretty good. Okay. It was, but it was just extra cheese. There was no nothing fancy, you know. <laughs> yeah, Bill was saying before we start, he has a bad memory, but he keeps pulling up all these gems. <laughs> I, I I remember a bu- a lot of things. Well, there's a chunk. I was in a car accident with my dad. And I hit the windshield. We were driving an old Chevy Chevelle, uh, heavy Chevy, and we were going really slow. But it was it was freezing. There was like a flash freeze, you know, and it gets cold really quick. And we went through an underpass in like Patterson or somewhere. And there's like a railroad underpass, a tiny little thing, but it's it's stone. And it gets very cold in there, and the ground had froze, so there was black ice in there. Mm. And as you come out of the tunnel, there's a sharp turn. Mm, yeah. We came out of the tunnel, went to turn, car didn't turn. Just hit the black ice, kept going at 25 miles an hour. But at 25 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, you hit a pole without braking at all. <laughs> well, you're, I mean, were there seatbelts at this point? Uh, there were no seatbelts in that 1971 Chevelle, so I went right into the windshield. And there's no anti-lock brakes, and it's rear-wheel yeah. drive. And, yeah. We completely uh, totaled the car, mm. and um, I, I, I sat back in the car. Next thing I remember is the guy's asking me, what state are you in? Shock. And <laughs> 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 that was the correct answer. But uh, I said... <clears throat> I got confused. Yeah. And I was, I knew I lived in New York, but I knew I was visiting my parents. I think they were taking me to a hospital um, for an exam. And I said, New York. No, no, no. I live in New York. This is New York. Oh, no, no, he's got a concussion. (laughs) That was it. I was like, I failed. And then I don't remember the ride. Supposedly, they drove me to the the hospital, checked me out. I was there for like two hours. Mm. All I remember was back at the house. That's all. That chunk of memory is completely gone. Yeah, there wasn't as much attention to the way we do now. With, with, oh, now, yeah, yeah, now, now it's it's really they realize the seriousness of head trauma. But uh, then, yeah, they but they told me, you know, don't fall asleep. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so um, <clears throat> I was supposed to stay awake and until regular sleeping time that I remember. But I lost a chunk of the eighties, like. So how old were you during the accident? Uh, this was like 1992-something, okay. 90, 90, somewhere in there. Um, I know I didn't have a car, so it had to be like 91 or 92. That was the last time I had a car was 1991. So I guess it was like 92 or 3 or 4. Um, it's about 30 years ago. Yeah, no, it must have been 94. 94, I think. Um so yeah, <laughs> and I lost a chunk of the 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 eighties. Like it's just gone. My college years are just gone. The, all mm. the memories I don't remember them. Any of them. People show me photos, weddings I played at, parties I was at. Don't remember any of it. Mm. Did all you get gone. forgiveness on your loans? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any loans, fortunately. Um, I was super cheap. I would. I didn't want my parents to spend a lot of money on my college because I knew I wasn't yeah. really into college. I was just wanted to be a musician. I just wanted to be a jazz musician. So I went to school, I finished my school. I was, school was crazy because I was pretty good at school work. Where'd you go to school? Montclair State University. Okay. And it was a five year program that I, a six year program, I finished in five years. And the, like the first semester I took 21 credits. <laughs> And people are like, oh, college isn't like high school, you know. I want to finish fast. I want to get out of here. 
So I took 21 credits, then 18 credits, and then like 17 credits. So by the time I got to senior, I, I didn't have that much to do. This was a music program? Yeah, or? music program. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you have these courses like band that are rehearsals, these long rehearsals, and they're half a credit. Yeah. <laughs> Two hours <laughs> for half a credit. Three hours for half a credit. Band, choir, orchestra. They were all required. Mm-hmm. So, um but uh, yeah, and then I met this guy who was roommates with Bruce Willis, an actor, hmm. and he taught me how to. Uh, how do you learn? What courses you got to take? I don't know. We're talking about it, and he's like, "Oh no, no, man, your, your philosophy's all wrong. <laughs> That's not how you go through college." He goes, "Here, he had this booklet, and it had all the teachers and what, how many papers they make you write." He goes, "Just pick your classes, pick the guys that that." That, that give you the least amount of papers to write. And I, it was genius. <laughs> All the crappy classes. <laughs> I just put interior design. I, you know, no paper there. Okay, I'm, I'm going with that. <laughs> no paper here. Okay. I picked all the ones. Uh, this guy, this, this, this professor is notorious. If you talk about baseball, he'll get off subject and that's it. Class is destroyed. I showed up, I think, five times out of my, I don't know, 20 classes. <laughs> Every time I was there, everybody was like, oh, there's that guy. Did you see a Met game last night? That picture was unbelievable. Oh, that was it. He talked about the Mets the whole rest of the class. Class is over. Every time I was there, I did it. And uh, I ended up getting a C. I failed the test. Didn't do any of the work, but he liked it. I was a, he liked that I pretended to be a Met fan, so I got to see. Oh, that is nuts. You say you lost your whole college <laughs> memory, and you're still pulling out all the stuff that's better memory than mine. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah. Well, um, there's a lot of things I don't remember, though. But right. Like that was that was er, that was kind of earlier, but like the later years, and all these parties and and gigs I played don't remember any of them I remember my senior recital my freshman recital because they were you know um, I had uh, uh, Jimmy Owens and, uh, no and uh, I, I, I had a big band that was it was the Jazzmobile big band mm-hmm. come and play at my senior recital and I wrote pieces for the big band and then my freshman recital, no one did a freshman recital at Montclair State. I was like the first person to do a freshman recital. And I wrote this piece that was classical and jazz mixed. And uh, <laughs> I had this, in high school I would, I had a, a band, it was like six girls and me and another guy. <laughs> I'm like, she's pretty. You can be in my band. She's barely play at all, but I'm gonna write. I'll write you in. And I wrote. I got this from Duke Ellington. He would write for specifically for the people sure. in the band. You know, like okay, this guy's good at that, and like like, you know, like a football team almost like using the, the talents. So, so, you know, I did the same thing. Like oh, this girl could play pretty good. I wrote parts a little more difficult. I wrote the difficulty level for this girl. Barely play at all, but she looks great. Yeah. So I give her one note. Da 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 da. And we played uh, Freddie Hubbard's first flight. I think that's called first. Oh, that one of those fusion records he did in the seventies. First flight. First I think. First flight. Skydive. Da, 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 oh, that's straight life. That's straight life. That's yeah. 
that, and I gave him the real simple back parts, and I did all the fancy stuff. That was how. So I then I continued that in college. This beautiful organist named Pam Sabo. We're still friends on Facebook. So I was like, wow, she's really nice. She was a good friend, you know. So I get her. <laughs> My girlfriend played French horn at the time. She's a beautiful girl. She's got to be in the band. <laughs> so this sounds like you're going for the the same titles as Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven, but very, yeah. very different hot. Yeah, I'm not teenage, <laughs> teenage boys, boy yeah. idea. And then I wrote a place for them. They, they had great timpanist Ed Metzger. He was really a uh, great timpanist. He might have been a senior or something, a junior. I remember. So I got, I got him on timpani. You know, I got got off the, all the all stars in there, and then I wrote this piece. And that was it. I was I was a darling from that moment on because, you know, there was a whole battle at the time in colleges, right? This was right before the the whole collegiate jazz thing mm. exploded. And there were very few jazz programs in colleges. William Patterson had a great one. Amon Clichy had no jazz program. And a lot of the teachers there who were staunch classical guys, ooh, they were bristly about jazz like, because I guess, you know, it's unknown to them, so it was, you know, <laughs> and there was a whole, you know, um, and they knew their days were numbered, that jazz was kind of moving into the college thing, <laughs> and if you don't know jazz, you, you probably, you know, you're going to be in trouble, because, you know, kids want to play popular music and, and jazz, you know, they, yeah. wanna, they yep. don't want to play <clears throat> classical music anymore, so, I mean, there's always going to be classical music players, but, but anyway, so, so there was a little bristling with some of the staunch conservative dudes in me and uh well i'm not surprised that there's you you play in so many genres i imagine there has to be a lot of a lot of like crossover where you're more comfortable mixing things than right probably than, a lot of musicians some of the you, other musicians yeah they just you know eventually you i don't know you you begin to learn to uh not everybody can do everything you know, yeah. it's fun. It's like some people can only play what they've heard before. They can't invent, you know, something new. They can only play what they've heard. And they could play. That's why they play cover music. They cover other people's music because to invent at a whole cloth, it's 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 a certain kind of mentality, I think, and. um so so some guys, you know, okay, play Miles kind of blue. Boom, they'll nail it. Sounds just sounds great. It's just like the tradition. But now just play. Take put the music down and just play. Play something. What? <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. play. Just play. Nothing. You know. Then you got these other guys, avant garde guys. Play. They got plenty to say, you know. <laughs> but Tom, okay, now now play, um, you know, this Billy C Joel major song. Scale. Yeah, he plays Billy Joel song. Uh, what, uh, nothing. They got nothing. You know, they they're so used to just doing their own thing, they can't really, you know, fit into that. And then some people can do both, or you know. Yeah, I mean, I. I have like some particular questions about I guess the New York City music scene in that regard and how how well things mixed. Um, but I, I didn't want to like jump straight away from all the college stuff. I was wondering, um, uh, w like, what from the 
gigs you had around college and and your local community growing up at what point did was like there a break like what gig made you feel like you were kind of like moving up to the next level um well it's funny i i never really thought that i would be a full-time professional musician i mean i wanted to be that was my my if there was one wish that i had you know, people like New Year's resolution or you make a birthday wish. I only had one wish my entire life. I thought if I just make this one wish, I think my chances of having it granted are much better than if I have different wishes all the time. So I only had one wish my entire life was to, to play music, you know, mm-hmm. preferably, if not for a living, at least being able to play a lot, you know, all the time was important. So, um, but then you know you go through college and then you it's like time to support yourself and and i had a day job which i really liked i worked for this uh i worked for actually (laughs) it's kind of a long story but but we have plenty of time so i'll tell a little part of it i to make a, a really long story a lot shorter i got into legal trouble um and I had to have a day job. So fortunately, a girl from that I went to school with, who was a roommate of, of my ex-girlfriend in college, um, uh, got me a job at the company where she was vice president. And I started out as a driver there. And then I started gigging and driving during the day and gigging at night is a combination for death. So, um, eventually then I moved to an office and, uh, uh, I was very happy with that, you know, playing gigs at night and I was doing a lot of salsa music. I started playing bass for a friend of mine and when I was in college, called me up and said, Hey Bill, you know, what do you want? Are you still have your bass? You still playing? I said, yeah, I'm still gigging on bass. And he said, do you think you could learn some? play salsa if it was all written out and I gave you a bunch of records I gave it a shot you know and I had just met a guy in New York when I was playing I I got you said college loans I didn't have loans because a lot of my money I made in college was playing music on the street Mm -hmm. and we would make like you know 100 bucks a day when we play on the street and uh, that got me through through school but I met a guy who I started arranging for his. He said, oh, you got a great feel for Latin music because I would play a few Joe Beam tunes, you know. And uh, he said, oh, you got such a good feel for Latin music. And I, so I learned some something, the basis of Cuban music. He gave me a bunch of records, and I learned charanga and song and some, and I started writing. So I had already had that, and then this other thing, and this friend called me out of the blue, Mike Kaplan, saxophone player from Jersey, he called me up out of the blue and, and asked me to join the salsa band. So I started playing. I had played. I played with that band for years. I'm still associated with the uh, leader of that band. We're producing some some stuff now. Um, but uh, so I, I was playing the salsa gigs, a lot of salsa gigs and Cuban gigs. And um, I met this great Marielito, um, who was the director of the Cuban National Ballet when he was living in Cuba. And then he came over in the Marielitos. And he was living in the States and he had started a school and uh, he was teaching 
Cuban music, so I was learning from him, and I was very happy in that scene. And then I got, you asked me what gig, I get a call, oh, I did, I played at the wedding of guitarist Mark Rebo, you know Mark Rebo? Sure. His brother, Greg, and I were good friends, mm -hmm. and uh, I played, he had a little um, company where they did a lot of club dates, and he was really getting involved in Argentinian music. He had an Argentinian guitar player he was playing a lot with, and he was doing records with that, and uh, uh, cumbia, traditional cumbia from Colombia and in Venezuela, and he also had a, did a lot of club dates. He had jazz and classical music, so I was playing with him. He got married. I played at his wedding, and um, his brother Mark was there, who I had always wanted to meet. I heard great things about him. You know, he was touring with Elvis Costello at the time, and uh, he heard me play. And speaking of moments notice, that's that's the tune he said in a moment's notice. I remember that. <laughs> that I re see this is really pivotal moments. I remember because I've told them so many times. Yeah. So it, then it sticks in your memory, but. Um, that was a turning point because he heard me play and he was in a band called the Jazz Passengers, which at the, actually at the time, it was called Attention Shoppers. <laughs> and they were, him, Roy Nathanson, Curtis Folks, E.J. Rodriguez, were all part of a band called the Lounge Lizards, John Lurie mm -hmm. and the Lounge Lizards. And as many bands form, Many of the members in that band were frustrated with John. And so they started their own little spin-off band called Attention Shoppers. And uh, I get a call, Mark from the band leader, Roy Nathanson. He says, Hey, Mark Rebo told me that, you know, you know, that you were you know, a great player and, and see if you would be interested in playing in this band. Attention shoppers, wow, that's, that's, I don't know what that's all about, but I was basically, you know, I was really a straight ahead player, you know, that's where my focus was, and, and just straight ahead jazz mostly, and, and some fusion with Latin music, of course, and um, and I always liked sort of jazz fusion, like Chikoria, Return to Forever, Macha McLaughlin, Mahavishnu, uh, Weather Report, uh, um, who else? Chuck Mangione was hot then. Freddie Hubbard was just doing some crossover stuff, you know, with uh, Fender Rhodes and Electric Bass and Herbie Hancock, Headhunters. And uh, I was interested in that stuff too, but I, I really wasn't on that level to play that music yet. But um, that's all I knew. I didn't know Ornette Coleman. And, <laughs> and uh, that music sounded crazy to me. <laughs> Like that's too too out. I don't understand that music, or you know, late John Coltrane, Ascension, all that. That's like over my head. So I remember the first rehearsal. We were oh, we're gonna get together at a rehearsal. I was like, okay, can you send me the charts? You know, so I can look at the music. It's like, well, you know, we'll, we'll get it together when you don't worry about that. All right. I don't know how this is going to go, because I was really terrible sight reader then, so <laughs> I was kind of worried, like, oh, boy, they put some stuff in front of me. I'm like, and uh, and I didn't know many tunes, because I'd been mostly playing Latin gigs, so I knew all, 
like Latin standards I knew, but I didn't know that many jazz standards, you know, 15, 20 tunes. So um, I go to the first rehearsal and they, they're like, there's no chart. I'm like, oh, just do this thing. Like, what? So he starts. <laughs> I was like, well, these guys are nuts. <laughs> what kind of music is this? Nobody's going to come see this. Is, you know, uh, I thought, I thought, this is the gig. Oh, wow. I'm going to be playing in New York. You know, I'm finally, you know, playing vibes, you know. And because uh, I think it was like really the first vibraphone gig call that I had gotten. I was all bass, you know, up until oh, then. Right. I played bass, you know, I did some gigs. They didn't use me around town that much because I didn't know that many standards. So, um, but the Latin thing I could do is all written. So mm -hmm. that stuff I did. And, uh, that was, uh, but I remember we played a gig in New York and I, you know, I was learning on the job because I had never heard this music before. So this gave me some records, you know, and I, and I listened to it, you know, but my straight ahead training, I mean, all those early avant-garde guys, you know, Eric Dolphy, you know, all those guys, they were coming out of straight ahead. So they had, the, they had the background, they had the the training, the chops, the understanding, the theory, they had all that and they just took it to another level. But um, a lot of the next level avant-garde guys were just trying to start there and go. And so it was, you know, there was a lot of junk, but this band was really, they were really, that was really cool. So the first gig we did, I think we played at The Kitchen. You know this place in New York? Yeah. The Kitchen. I don't even know if it's still there, but it was a funky little tiny little place but um it was packed i was surprised and then the knitting factory opened up in 89 i guess um we did a tour through canada in 1987 with that band and people there was an audience for this music i couldn't believe it i was like you know i the, the audience for straight ahead jazz was shrinking so i assumed that you know this kind of music, this is even less popular right. than that. So, but there was a real audience for it, and we did a successful tour through Canada, and um, and I started to sort of understand the music, um, and uh, um, had my influence on the band because I was, for for a change of pace, I was the more conservative guy in the group. <laughs> so. Uh, so that I I think it was good. It was a good marriage of guys who were really coming out of a real uh, avant-garde tradition, and other guys that were coming out of a more straight-ahead tradition. And, and then you would go on to make it. And then you would go on to make an album with Mark doing the music of Duke Ellington. Yes, um, which yeah, ties in you that wanting was to all write through the Knitting Factory. Yeah, um, actually, um, the record that I did with Mark um, was not. That was a uh, Japanese label. Okay. And an engineer for Groove Collector Hero was responsible for that. He had this record company that wanted to do something with me. Uh, like a duo which is all they could afford <laughs> and so they were like um and they were very happy when i had mark rebel because he was he was somebody that was well known mm -hmm. and uh so i did a duo <laughs> and, and 
it was a very limited release in Japan, and they gave me the master, and they said that I could re-license it wherever, oops, sorry, <laughs> wherever I wanted, um, but not in Japan. So then I, I ended up re-releasing the record on uh, Ninning Factory label, and then of course they kind of screwed it up, and it ended up going to Japan anyways, which made a real rift between me and the label but that's a whole it probably lot. would have done a lot better in japan than any other place <laughs> that's it's, a no another story but uh yeah funny japan played a, a significant role too because so that was a pivotal gig for me because that got me into the jazz passengers and because of that um we were rehearsing of course in the city and everything was in the city and i was in the city all the time and then i got um i Oh, a buddy of mine who I met through the Latin scene, Jay Rodriguez, um, band leader. <laughs> this will go back in history to 19, I don't know, 82 maybe? One, two, three. Calls me up and he says, and we had this local gig. It was, it was a mile from my house in Irvington, New Jersey. His uncle owned this place and we played there every Thursday night. Oh, nice. So... <laughs> He calls me up, oh, Bill, it's Butch. Hey, Butch, what's going on, man? Um, there's this kid that wants to sit in with us. Can you go pick him up? Oh, really? Where does he live? Uh, he lives in like North Berg. And it's, I'm like, oh, man, that's like 45 minutes. So I had to drive all the way, 45 minutes, pick him up and drive all the way back to the gig and then drop him home and, and drive back. But I did, and I'm glad I did, because Jay's, uh, he ended up being a terrific music partner for many years. Um, and uh, he was responsible for the 8-Ball Records deal, Jay. And he's also responsible for moving me to New York. He found a place for me to live and uh, lost it, and then found another place. But that's a whole other story. But I eventually moved to New York, you know, one of those illegal lofts on uh, 6th Avenue between 28th and 29th Street. And had his loft. It was like five hundred dollars a month. No, no, it was a thousand dollars a month, and uh, twelve hundred square feet. Yeah, nice spot. You know, <laughs> back in nineteen ninety, that was that was a nice spot. That and was it, on the way out for those kinds of scenes yeah, too. Yes, exactly. Those that was that was that tail. scene was on its yeah. way down. But uh, cool landlord. He was very cool, and uh, and and the cool thing was I was the only resident in the building. It was all businesses mm -hmm. on the other three floors. It was a fourth floor walk up. And uh, so that was cool. So after 6.30, the entire building was mine. You can make as much noise as you want there, which was fantastic. Just out of curiosity in that era, we're going to interview uh, Verna Gillis shortly on this. And I don't, she was a big part. She had a record company called uh, Soundscape. I don't know if you ever, I'm just curious if you ever crossed paths because she was in the 60s and the 70s and 80s. She was big on that loft scene. And I'm just curious if you would cross yeah, paths with no, her. I heard the name. I've heard of the, I've heard of her, but yeah. never didn't cross paths. A lot her. of stuff with uh, with Roswell Rudd. I don't know if you, if they, yeah. but it's that same yeah. area. So I was just curious. Yeah, no, um, I'm kind of weird that way too. Um, I was never really a people person. And I, I, I don't like to hang out. Um, it's like Donald Fagan is also like, <laughs> he's like, oh, so this is hanging out, huh? What do I do? <laughs> I was like, that epitomizes me. 
I know I, I know I reason why I love this guy. <laughs> He's just like me. It epitomizes me. It's like, oh, this is hanging out, huh? So, so what, what do we do? You know, like, I, I had right a beer, I had some food. Now, like, now what do I do? We, we just talk? How do you do this? You know? <laughs> there always had to be a purpose for me. Like, oh, they're going to have some great weed there. Oh, okay, I'll go. <laughs> oh, this girl's going to be there that you're like, oh, okay, I'll go there. Yeah, oh, this we, musician's going to be there. you got to meet him. Oh, okay. <laughs> then you could drag me out of my house. But other than that, don't bother me. I'm just... well, that's a perfect place to transition. You want to talk about that album that you did with Donald, that you're the, the Alive? Is, uh... Yeah, well, that was a whole, you know, that was a whole experience. Um well, you, you toured with them as the yeah. percussionist, not just on vibraphone, from 1993 to 95, correct? Yeah. 93 to 95, yep. So um, how, did, how did you get to, to, to working with them, and, that, and then how did, that, how did the album come yeah, Well, the whole thing, that's like, my, that's my life. Like, um, I never looked for any of it. I never looked for any of it. I was, I had my day job, I had my little gigs, you know, I practiced, you know, and I was very happy and all of that until, you know, I got plucked out of the air like, oh, these guys like you, you know, playing with them, okay. Played with, you know, Jazz Passengers first in 87, I started playing with them and then I, you know, Jay called me up, oh, you got to move to the city, you know, I'm playing with this really great band, you got to check the scene out. I moved to the city and I... Uh, Jay introduced me to um, <clears throat> it's funny I, I the first I was in New York for one month in 1990 <clears throat> I get a call from Jay oh this girl is looking for musicians to go to Japan you interested yeah and the jazz passengers had about four months where we weren't doing anything and I had just moved to the city and I had my Rent when I was in New Jersey was like five thirty six, and now my rent is a thousand. So, um, the company that I was my day job, the company went out of business. So, I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> hey, where's the money coming from now?" And um, so I was looking for. Uh, then I'm now I'm looking for more stuff to happen. So. So Jay, he calls me up. Oh, yeah, tells me about this. So we went to Japan. Cut, make a long story short, they they had agents in New York that were, and they put together this band to to make. Um, they were trying to sell jazz because at that point, jazz really quality New York style jazz would cost you three hundred and fifty to, to five hundred dollars a ticket in Japan to go to see a concert, and it's like you know a concert like Miles or somebody like that, and it's expensive as you know. Like the average person can't afford it. So they wanted to come up with an idea of having like a supper club jazz thing where people would pay like 50 to $75 for a dinner and jazz. So they got like lesser known jazz people. And that was the concept. They wanted to have us for two years. They couldn't get anybody. Nobody wants to, no quality jazz musician wants to go to Yokohama, Japan for two years. It's like, no. So one year, no. Six months, no. <laughs> we got it down to three months. So we went, Greg Murphy, uh, you know, Greg, great jazz piano player. And uh, uh, Andy McLeod, he just, great jazz bass player. He just passed away, I think, two, three years ago. He played with, like, Elvin Jones, um, big band for years. Um, great bass player. He was part of it. So we went over to Japan. We played six nights a week, three sets a night for three months. 
when I came back to New York, that was that gig kind of made my shops because mm-hmm. you, you just don't have gigs like that anywhere except for like in Asia they have most of them are R&B gigs they have an R&B band they bring an R&B band over from the south for like six months two years like a year yeah. long gigs you know these house band you know so um, that was unheard of so so that but but and we we didn't just schlock through it like a club date or something we really kind of took it seriously and uh, <laughs> They also they wanted us to rehearse five night five days a week. <laughs> like they wanted you to rehearse. We're playing jazz standards. You know, it's not you know just they have a different mentality. Yeah. It's just like very work and like you know, and uh, uh, so they <laughs> we negotiated that down to to three days a week. I think it was we rehearsed three days a week. So what are we going to rehearse? So what I did was I would make like arrangements every. I would make new arrangements, you know, like, and then we would incorporate like Japanese melodies into how can I, how can we fit these Japanese melodies into? So we have these elaborate intro, these intros, you know, and we would work in like every city in Japan has a melody. Oh wow! And when you cross the street for the for the, I guess for the blind, the melody plays when the light is green. Hmm. So each town, so the town we were in Yokohama had a da 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 ba da ba da 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 ba da ba da da. It's from some traditional Japanese music. So we we I learned some traditional Japanese music. So it's all it's cool. So we do like Stella by Starlight. We start out with like a, a you know pedal tone in the bass boom 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 the boom ding dong ding dong 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 we start out da, 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 da. by the time we left there da, 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 dee, da, da. We, we just bump up the tempo every night we bump it up then we start okay you we'll, we'll, each soloist will go up a half step so that we learn this in all 12 keys I, I just come up with musical challenging things every week to keep it fresh and it really and it made the gig interesting and Raise the level of everybody's playing by the time we got out of there where everybody was burning at 300 beats a minute we were all part of the 300 club 300 you know beats a minute you know easy like and i and also taught me if you want to play bebop the only way to play bebop is to play bebop every day all day <laughs> you got to play those tempos because your chops are like on fire by then and just like regular music it's too like easy. It's like uh, it's like Mary had a little lamb. Let's just let's play it faster or something. You know, it's like it's too easy. And uh, so that made. So then I came back to New York three months later, and I was so happy about that. I was like, I got to find a, a gig like that around here. It's the only way I'm going to become the player that I want to be. So I I I started looking for stuff, and I the piano player approached me, who had a a steady supper gig in this place called Metropolis Cafe. So he basically didn't have a band. He was from Australia and didn't, you know, he didn't have a band. I had a band. So my piano player was very busy. Matt King 
great piano player from from Jersey keyboardist. Um, and he was very busy. He was getting more busy. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll bring my band minus a piano player, and this piano player got the gig. So <laughs> I just incorporated my band. So we're playing upstairs. Downstairs, they had a floating club called Giant Step. I don't know if you remember Giant Step from the I 90s. Don't. Acid Jazz. The Acid Jazz scene was just starting. Giant Step was sort of kicking that whole thing off. And they had DJs, really hip DJs, and live musicians playing along with the DJs. And so they invited people to sit in, and it, it blew up. They had 800 people down there and a line out the door. And that particular area also... Um, there's a cafe right. There was a cafe right on the corner. Very, um, a lot of photography studios around there. So a lot of models hung out in that area. So it was kind of you know, had that vibe to that you know you know models seem to you know bring. I'm sensing a theme with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a model kind of guy. I, I found that out really quick. You, you got those. That's like money people. You know, I was never a money guy and. A, so that that scene that was not for me <laughs> but i saw all those people and it's funny cal jader has a similar story of why he started doing latin jazz because he had a jazz group you know little thing and he saw the latin people going into the thing downstairs and like they got five six thousand people going in there and i got 20 you know so i want to play that yeah. so slowly but surely my group I have think Fabio Magera on trumpet, Jay Rodriguez on tenor saxophone, Josh Roseman on trombone. Oh, I know Josh. Barney, Barney McCall um, on piano. He play, he does plays with um, Gary Bartz. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Brad Jones was playing bass, and they were all going downstairs to the club to sit in, where there were you know eight hundred people and unbelievable women celebrities came through there you know all kinds of people to sit in you know and it was a big scene so eventually they all and eventually they formed the group groove collective that's mm -hmm. how groove collective mm -hmm. formed which was another one of these there was a band called repercussions and a lot of the members were very unhappy with the band leader there so they formed their own little jam thing because that was a very tightly arranged pop thing and they wanted to play you know so they formed their own thing. And what interested me was the, it was they were playing for dancers. You know, it was like jazz, quality music, funky beats, but quality music on top. But for dancing, you know, and, and it, I was like, this could sell, this could, this could work. And, it's, and I always love playing for dancers, just a certain energy you're really getting it and not just people watching, they're actually participating in it. The energy of that always interested me. So I started playing with them. Repercussions and Groove Collective became a packaged record deal that through the producer, the keyboard player for Repercussions, Scott Barf, uh, Scott Barkham. <laughs> there we go. Come on, brain cells, don't <laughs> fail me now. Scott Barkham um, was the manager of River Sound. Okay. Donald Fagan's recording studio. He was the keyboard player for Repercussions. He got Gary Katz to come check out his band. And re also, he checked out Groove Collective. So he got a package deal selling this new style of acid jazz music to Warner Brothers. Unfortunately, Warner Brothers was just in the midst of a big 
changeover. Lenny Warnaker, I think, was the CEO, and he got the oust, and all his people got booted, and they brought in a whole new crew. And of course, we were Lenny's people, so uh-huh. <laughs> we kind of got shelved in that whole deal. But the good thing was, you know, Gary Katz. Gary Katz produced the Steely Dan records. So he's the one that recommended me to Donald Fagan. And Donald heard my Club Bird All-Stars. When we came back from Japan, I changed the band up a little bit, and we did a recording on The Knitting Factory. It was really, the critics were raving about it. And uh, so um, that's the record he heard. And maybe maybe he heard my uh, Keeping Up With The Joneses. No, that was later. Yeah, that was the record that he heard, and uh, he hired me sight unseen, wow. <laughs> just like kind of unusual for them. But um, they believe, you know, Gary Katz. Uh, you know, if he, he he was like, if 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 I could have one influence on this new uh, rendition of Steely Dan, it's uh, that was it. That was me. <laughs> so he said, you know, because he wasn't crazy about the guitarist that they had, the lead guitarist. I don't know why. I, I think he's an unbelievable player. <laughs> Drew Zing, unbelievable worker too. That work ethic of that guy is. I mean, he, that, that's the. Yeah, he's on that album. That yeah. that dude's he's amazing. Just yeah. ridiculous. Drew yeah. is like, and he's a guy that he had a little practice rig. It's about this big. He could plug his. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny, he had like a little multi-track thing. Mm. <laughs> he's like the Cuban musicians. He's like the guitar is like attached to his body. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> guy practice. I was like, damn, you, you know, vibraphone players can't do that. It makes me so jealous. Mm-hmm. You know, they could walk around with your instrument and like never put it down. I mean, if I did that, <laughs> it'd be very awkward. You know. But uh, yeah, Drew was like, but he didn't. Gary didn't supposedly didn't like wasn't crazy about it he's like oh if i have to listen to his solos all night i'm not gonna even come to the concert but uh, why don't you hire this guy because he he you could have some other kinds of solos besides tenor saxophone and guitar and uh and um he's a great soloist and he also plays percussion because they were like oh what do we do he can't have vibes on every tune you know what what's you know but he plays percussion also so so they got a percussion rig for me and i and i i ended up doing the gig yeah um do you remember like uh like your first time meeting uh donald was that like in a rehearsal yeah there's you know we rehearsed and uh and this was my first i call them a level you know it's like you got your a level bands that travel plane and they stay in five-star hotels then you got your b level bands that travel planes but mostly trains and they stay in three-star hotels you know and then you got your like sea level guys who are traveling in their in their car you know and i've haven't done that much of the sea level most of them b level but this was like my first real like a level uh uh, tour although i did do one gig a level my very first gig out of the country was supporting Chocolate Armentero. I don't know if you heard of this guy. Oh, no. One of the most. He was like, uh, people describe him as the Louis Armstrong of Cuba. Oh, wow. Unbelievable talent. Just, and such a sweet guy, wonderful guy. And I'm like, this is nuts. I played in a bullfighting stadium in 1986, and the band was called Typical Septeto Cubano. 
except there were like two Cubans in it. <laughs> I thought this is ridiculous. This is like my first big gig in 120,000 people. Wow. And we're the, the lead act of 20 bands. We were the main headliner out of 20 bands in this festival. And I, I felt like such a phony. I'm like, I just learned this music. And here I am like at the pinnacle. And I'm like, it was crazy. But that was my first. But other than that, yeah, this was my first. And that was, you know, that was kind of A-level. Beautiful hotel right on the beach in Cartagena at the, the topless beach. I have never seen a sea of, of 12s. So this was more of a... Naked. <laughs> This was, was like, more of a C or a double D tour is what you're saying? Whoa, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's an A double D tour. Yeah. <laughs> and, and cocaine grows on trees there. And uh, It actually does. It really literally yeah, yeah. grows on trees there. And we would buy the leaves. You know, you could buy the leaves for like $2. And ah, best high Ever, I'm chocolate. We all chipped in forty dollars and got like a small mountain of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, unbelievable! It was like the greatest time. I one of the greatest times that I ever had in my life. I slept. This is in South America. Yeah, this five is, days I was there. I slept nine hours. <laughs> we need, I'll sleep next year. This is too. And it, oh, that's a whole another story. But anyways, that was that. So I get. Yeah, so uh, um, this was the first A level, and just you know, the hotel stuff, staying in the five star hotels, and um, and the first rehearsal was at you know catered rehearsal, my first catered rehearsal <laughs> at SIR, you know. So um, everybody's a little nervous, you know, like because they have such a reputation, right, for, for perfection, like, perfection, and and like. I never, I was always in bands where it's like, you know, people on my own level and my boys, friends, whatever, you know, people that becomes like more like a family, you know, jazz passengers, we're still together, we're getting ready to do another, and maybe our last record, because <laughs> the guys are getting old, um, next two two weeks from now, we're going to record another record, and uh, his, uh, the band leader's son is going to sing and play with us for the first time, Um but uh, yeah, I I had never been like a I didn't do that much side man work where you know top level side man work, so I was sort of like a rookie there in terms of that you know Peter Erskine, Cornelius Bumpus, Bob Shepard, Chris Potter, Warren Bernhardt, uh, uh, Drew Zing. I mean these guys are all like top level studio guys. So I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> it's a great place to find yourself in. Exactly. Yeah. It was nuts. So, but anyway, so we do in the first rehearsal, and it was, um, what was that tune? Mm -hmm. Da da da. Oh, yeah. Home at last. Home at last. Was it Home at Last or was it. Um, no, it was uh, Cold, Daring, No. Flies oh, green on me, green earrings. So Donald sits down. He had had a rehearsal with the with the uh, with the rhythm section already. So they they were they were already they had done a week. So they were tight. But it was the first rehearsal with all the pian with with me, the singers, and the horn section. 
So Donald comes in, everybody's stewing around, you know, talking, meeting, and whatever. Which I was in those days, I was really bad. I'm just, I was super shy, so I just doing my thing. Like, I'm, wow, Peter, I'm trying not to be, you know, blown away by all this. But and I was, you know, younger too, and kind of cocky in my own way. I guess you know, like, they ain't no star. I'm the real star here. <laughs> so Donald comes in. Everybody's ooh, okay. He sits down. Okay, we're gonna start with green earrings. Everybody gets their music out. He says, um, okay, the one thing I, you know, I went all over this with the rhythm section, but, and he went over sort of his, some of his philosophies about, about, and it was a great learning experience in terms of band. He's, he's a great band leader. I mean, he knows what he wants and he knows how to get it. So he explained this whole thing like, it's really important to make the off of notes. This is one of the greatest things I learned is it's not funky enough to get the on right, but you got to get the off. Huh. And I never thought about the off of notes. Like, yeah, releasing together so everyone yeah, has the so same that it breathes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so he was like, and when there are certain beats I don't want you to play on, like, it makes it the spaces that I want. So he said, make sure you, if you, if you come off the notes crisp, da 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 off off you know and every tune has a little where you need space to make the grooves happen and that was a real you know mental note taker right there for me it's like man the offs and i never thought of that so that, that was there were a lot of learning experiences like that so he says well in this tune i don't want anybody on the one but the bass and the kick so it's boom shababa dabakababa off Da da da, shank da off, ba ba ba. So we like, and I was really into the James Brown method because I had watched a bunch of videos of how he puts tunes together. You know, he like sings all the parts. He he knows all the parts. He plays yeah. all the parts, and he plays all the parts. And he sings. If he can't play the instrument, he'll sing them to you. And that's the you know he just invents it like. And so, I was really into this counter, like because it's always can. It's all. It's all. You know, interlocking parts. And I was like, really, Donald? You really? So, first thing I did, he said, so make sure nobody, don't put anything on the one. Okay, he counts it off. One, two. Oh, Peter Erston always counted off because he had, uh, they were really strict about tempos. So he had a machine that would start the tune with a click and then cut out after he, whatever he programmed, 16 bars, 18 one. So he would count, tick, tick, tick. And of course, being that jerk that I am, what do I do? The first thing he said, don't do this, I did it. <laughs> I go, bling. Boom. We get through the tune. No, we got through about 32 bars. And he goes, oh, well, 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 stop, 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 stop. Bill, um, don't put anything on the one. <laughs> Mike's like, did you hear me, you fucking idiot? <laughs> really Bill, he's a very subtle guy, very soft, you know, few words. And don't, don't, don't put anything on the one. I was like, all right. I thought that part sounded pretty cool. But, all right, that's what you want. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. 
uh, same thing. We get about thirty-two bars. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Bill, go back to doing what you were doing. <laughs> oh, you were right. That sounded better. <laughs> he never said another word to me the entire time. Never said like, Don't tell me what to play. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's you what... can tell him other dudes what to play. Don't tell me what to play. I know what to play. <laughs> I had a bad attitude, but um, but that that was my experience with Steely Dan. Um, that fir- you know that first rehearsal, that that kind of like that was it, and then. I don't think Donald hardly said two words to me other than that. And I'm, you know, I, I wish I had my personality now and confidence now that back then, thirty years back, um, because uh, I would, I would have probably made more of an attempt to, to learn some things from him. But um, I did watch. He has a video out about how he, and he did talk to me several times about how he puts stuff together. You know, which is really interesting. You know, he starts every tune he writes is, he starts out with like a blues con- concept. Every single tune, you know, hmm. like Asia. How did that? How's, I don't hear any blues in that. Yeah. But but every tune starts out. It's like where's the four chord movement? You know, like mm. I don't. You know, where's that? And I'm gonna find that blues in here. And then he has the melody, you know, the, the word, they work the words together. And uh, and then he'll he'll go, okay, here's here's what, you know, here's one way to harmonize it or the standard way or whatever you want to call it. Now that chord there, let me try this one. Well, that's what's let cool about one. that let album. Let me try this one, let me try that. And every chord, like he'll go through to try and find the, you know, the perfect chord that's not your typical thing for that and that leads you so that whole method was was pretty cool to learn and um, he has a whole video out on 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 how how he does that so that 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 i learned from them but that that was kind of like that set the tone i had a little battle like going on with some of the guys because i was inventing my own parts i either doubled donald or i invented my own parts they're like, oh, he's making up stuff that's not in the chart, man. <laughs> they're like, they tried to get me fired, and uh, that came to head. The um, I remember the uh, Madison Square Garden show. The uh, Drew came up to me, the musical director, and he was like, oh, some of the guys in the band are complaining about you, so I have to talk to Donald and Walter. And I was like, wow. Am I going to get fired? <laughs> but that was a two-year uh, tour. It won't, it won't be the first time, motherfuckers. <laughs> I've been fired. Well, you know, at my job, that corporate job, that one corporate job that I had, <laughs> I worked myself up to, uh, I was the manager of the um, account receivables department. <laughs> and um, the chairman we had a meeting one day and the chairman was come oh john froling the chairman is coming in oh everybody was you know oh the chairman you know like, yeah, i didn't really give a shit because I, I i knew i was going to be leaving that job to play music anyways eventually so that was my mentality um <laughs> so we had this big meeting and he was like oh you know you're not collecting the bills fast enough and i was busting my ass for that job so dude don't talk to me like that. I don't care who chairman or who you are. Everybody's like, <laughs> and then he was like, well, who do you think you are? You can't talk to me like that. I, I stood up, 
I threw a chair across the room. And I gave him drop the F bomb. I'm like, boom, just like that. Fagan. <laughs> no, this, oh. this was the chairman of the company of the I'm company only that I was I'm only kidding. <laughs> I don't take shit from people like you. <laughs> don't, you know, bam, he fired me. The, co- the president of the company called me up the next day, hired me back, and they doubled my salary. <laughs> you got balls, man. I can't believe you did that. I'm going to try that at my next gig. I know. I was like, wow. You, you ever see that Walter Mitty, like, the uh, how to succeed in business? No, I've right? heard of that. I don't know you what that is, really. Of, that's, that's trying to the story of that. It's like, you know, you got to know when to, you know, know when to, you know, one to hold and them sometimes, and one to fold sometimes, them. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. You, sometimes you just got to say no, and then they turn around and have respect for you. And I was like, ah, it doesn't work, but it worked. <laughs> I couldn't believe they called me up, and I really needed that job too because, like I told, you, I had these legal problems, and and if it went south, I was going to need that to get out of prison and go to work release, which I ended up doing. I went to jail for a year, and I was out on work release, and I recorded a record with Jazz Passenger. I think our first album I recorded, I was in jail. <laughs> and I was sneaking out of, I was supposed to be at my job, but um, they allowed me to sneak into New York. And I almost got caught. They came to check, actually, one time, and my boss totally covered for me. Oh, he's out on a run. He'll be back. Oh, house. this is like the supervised yeah, this, release the, the, part. This, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so the guy showed up. You know, they'll, they'll go every yeah, once in yeah, a while yeah. check on you, you know. Yeah. And he showed up, and I was in New York. <laughs> and they were like, oh, he's on a run. He'll probably be back in an hour if you want to wait. <laughs> he's not on the run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't mess around. Oh, it was crazy. Yeah. But I, yeah, but I it's managed tough. to. Yeah. I was in jail for a year. Uh, I did uh, six, six, three months, six, three months of that, six months of that, yeah, yeah. three months and two weeks, I think it was, it ended up. yeah, that's right, you do two-thirds, you get time off for good behavior, half the time off for good behavior, another third, third of the time off for uh, being, uh, for having a job and maintaining a job. So as far as your tours are concerned, this is the D level? <laughs> yeah, this was the, uh, I think this is the F level. I, it might even be below yeah. like the Z level. No food reviews coming from no, you? Well, actually, federal prison is probably Z level. I was more like, a, you know, county jail is like, yeah, it's like G level, I guess. <laughs> I bet it's tough recording when you're when you're in prison. You probably get behind a few bars. Oh, oh boops! <laughs> Actually, there were no bars because I was uh, I uh, graduated out of the uh, the jail. You know, the first couple of weeks you're in jail, like they put you in the main house with like murderers and stuff. <laughs> and to, while you're waiting for your release pa- your work release papers to come through. That was probably one of the scariest. Uh, yeah, if you're in county, they don't divide you up. You're all together. Yeah. Well, at first, because they're waiting to send you. Right. They're into waiting the to send you wherever you're going to go. Yeah. But at first, you're all together, and so yeah, all those people that are waiting their trial or yeah. whatever, you know, they're, they're all there, and it was like thirty guys in a room about the size of smaller than this entire basement. Mm-hmm. Thirty guys, bathroom with like five urinals and one toilet on a stage with no curtain <laughs> that i'll never forget yeah. walking in that bathroom like looking at the toilet up on a stage and the and the bathroom has no it's like there are two doors into this bathroom area it's sort of like a 
it's like this, like a wide open room. Mm-hmm. And there are two doors here with no, no, no doors on them, just doorways, just yeah. open. Yeah. And there's the toilet, like over there on a stage. I'm like, well, are you kidding me? I didn't poop for a week. <laughs> no, almost two weeks. Oh my God. Almost two weeks, bro. I did not poop. Ugh. I'm not sitting on a stage in front of everybody. I just couldn't. Nowadays, I'd be like, fuck it, I don't care. At 20 something, you know, I was like, uh, that is not happening. That is not happening. Yeah. And then, like, I get, my uncle was the assistant commissioner of the Labor Department in New Jersey, so I, I had, um, <laughs> I had, I had a good connect there, and he supposedly made a few calls, like to sort of speed up my work release. But I had, a, but in, and then in the meantime, I got a, a job, the best prison job, the second best prison job. The best prison job is the laundry because he gets to go all over, including the women's part of the prison. <laughs> and the second best is commissary. That's you work in the prison store. Yep. So I got the commissary job, and so. There's one guy who's like, you know, you're not just like it is on TV. There's one guy who's like, obviously the biggest, strongest, baddest guy in there, and he was he had killed somebody. He had two bodies on him. He had some armed robbery, killed two guys. So he got two bodies on him, and this guy was built like, you know, <laughs> he was built like um like uh, the Rock. <laughs> he looked a lot like the Rock too. That same light skin, you know, big guy. So I get the prison job and there were all kinds of knuckleheads in there bothering me and just, cause I was a shy guy, quiet, very thin. I weighed 106, 200 and barely 160 pounds, 157 pounds. So I was pretty scrawny and uh, they were bothering me. So then uh, I get the prison job. Now all of a sudden, like nobody's bothering me anymore, but the big guy calls me over. I'm like, oh man. Oh, this can this get any worse? So he's, he shoes one of his boys. Well, he has like, and there's like prison. It looks like it's still in the 1950s. I mean, yeah, the way old. I mean, they don't. <clears throat> that prison actually is closed now. The one in New, this was in New Jersey. And so, anyways, just like he's sitting on an old broken down chair. It's the only chair in there. The rest is like some milk cartons and some other, you know, like boxes, and that's what people are sitting on. So he shoes his boy. Get him, move, move, make way for this guy. Yeah, sit down next to me. So I'm like, oh boy. So I sit down. He goes, oh, I hear you got the commission job. And I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, um, they give you two cartons of cigarettes a week, don't they? I said, yeah, yeah. They, you want them? You're gonna have them. I don't smoke. <laughs> That's how stupid I was. He was like. <coughs> Is this guy for real? Like, <laughs> nobody's that stupid. Like, I'm like, oh, you want him? You can have him. Okay. He's like, he was expecting, I guess he, I don't know, he was expecting yeah. a fight from me. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> 457 pound musician, you're a fucking professional killer. <laughs> what do you expect? Sure, you can have him. You want what else you want? You know, you want my shoes? I mean, I, I was really like, like this. And he, he was so taken back by it and by like, sort of like my, you know, all the guys there, they're all like, you know, ghetto dudes, you know, <laughs> like they didn't even think, they didn't, they, a lot of people were asking me, what country are you from? Because oh yeah. My English was so, you know, my dad was a, 
was an English teacher. So my diction and English speaking properly with the if you made a grammatical mistake, you know, you might lose dessert. My family. That's <laughs> very. I was very proper. Hey man, where you from? England. <laughs> so I play it. Yes, I was born in Hampshireford. Yes. <laughs> I just make some shit up and wow, you know, it's so easy to to like bamboozle all those guys. They're so dumb. So um, <clears throat> but it was so funny. Like, so I gave him I gave him the cigarettes. After that, nobody bothered me. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah, that's great. And I was like, the only guy in prison with a decent job. So after like, and you have to take your paycheck from your job and directly deposit it into the prison bank. Hmm. So they, you're not allowed to have any money. Of course. So um, my like check, two cartons so, of so after, like, uh, after like the first month, I was the richest guy in prison. And everybody know because there's no secrets in there because the prisoners kind of run everything. So you know, like the records, like they're the secret, you know, so, so everybody knew that I was, had the most money in my prison account by like thousands. <laughs> mm. So <laughs> I don't know what that guy's was doing. So <laughs> after a while, they all, I know they thought I was like some king queen drug dealer or something. <laughs> so I got treated with a lot of respect. I was getting my suits pressed for me and my sandwiches made for me at night by his Uncle Corey. It's like the oldest guy in prison. You were getting the aged toilet wine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, but I was out every day. So, you know, yeah. once I got my work release papers, thank goodness I was out because it was getting, you know, weird in there with the 30 people in the room. And 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 finally I could go to the bathroom. Whew, man, I was so relieved to get my work release job. But that, that was my, that was the uh, late 80s for me. So then... Yeah, so to go from that to Steely Dan in four years was those from '88. I got out of prison in '88, um, and uh, then uh, I moved to the city in '90. Then I, Steely Dan in '93. Then I had a tragedy. Then I had uh, I had um, fell '94. The tour ended. I went to a party. I think Josh Roseman was was with me. And we got out of a cab. I drank vodka. I was a little depressed because the Steely Dan tour had ended. And uh, I drank vodka, which I'm not supposed to drink. And I was real. I turned into Dr. Jekyll with, with when I drink. I turned into Mr. Hyde when I drink <laughs> vodka. <laughs> So I don't even remember it. I attacked some girl or something, and uh, I fell and I broke a bone in my foot. I didn't realize it. I walked on it for four days. Then I went to the hospital and I told them I think I broke my foot. It was all swollen and sore. And they were like, "If you broke your foot, you wouldn't be able to walk on it." One runs. I told them the whole story, and they were like, "No, there's no way it's broken. Maybe you have a bad sprain or something." Sure enough, it was broken. Mm. And the reason why I didn't feel it was. When they took the cast off my leg, all the muscles from my knee down were completely gone. Like complete atrophy, 100% atrophy. And they were like, oh my God, something is up with your nervous system. You have to go to a, a neurologist. So they sent me to an orthopedic specialist first to see if there's anything wrong with my, my knee, nothing wrong with the leg. Sent me to a neurologist. 
did an MRI. Sure enough, they found a, a two millimeter sized tumor in my spinal column, huh. in the spinal cord, crushing the spinal cord. It damaged my spinal cord. And uh, so then um, they removed the tumor, but I could no longer stand and play the vibraphone. I can't stand that. I couldn't, for years, I couldn't stand at all. And I could barely walk. So I started riding a bicycle everywhere through the entire 90s. Everywhere I went, <laughs> I took a bike on the subway. It was a wheelchair, basically. So I was, I was basically a wheelchair. I could get from point A to point B, but only by like holding onto things. And they didn't want me to use a cane because it's a very rare situation, but it's a, a regenerative nerve condition. So the nerves are getting better. Huh. <laughs> it's just really slow. So up until when Dana first met me in 2010, I couldn't walk to the train station most days. Especially if I was a little tired, I couldn't walk to the train station. I couldn't stand at all. Like standing, like just standing, I couldn't stand at all. Oh my God. I had to lean on somebody. So everywhere I went, you know, hey, I just lean on them. Listen to a lot of Bill Withers. <laughs> yeah, I was Bill Withers. <laughs> but I would lean, you know, and then you know, eventually I stopped going out a lot because you feel so uncomfortable. Like in a crowded bar situation, I could not maneuver. My yeah. feet, you know, it's like one leg is 30% and the other one is like 85 So just and then you, you start going out less and you're just doing less things and I couldn't dance anymore I couldn't so uh, but I changed my playing in kind of a good way because after that I started sitting and then once I sat I realized now I have a free foot and I, it's better for your back and I have a free foot so I started using uh, effects pedals and uh, <coughs> I really took advantage of my um, my uh, pickup system I, I started playing uh eventually because i was playing with so many loud bands um groove collective especially it's a really loud band <clears throat> and i had a pickup system and i would play through an amp and then uh, i just told the story to uh i did a um oh i did a radio interview for this guy out in california um and i was telling him that uh you know it led to me uh Having having the effects pedal, and then uh, I did a gig with John Zorn. He asked me about John Zorn, and I said, "Well, John Zorn is kind of responsible for me, you know, doing some electric guitar things because I played with this, I think, the God, Death God, or I forget the name, Pig God, or so. He had this band with this drummer who was one of the loudest drummers I've ever heard." Um, John Zorn did, or John Zorn. It was was like, it Naked City? Or? No, it wasn't Naked City. It was God Dog, something like this. This is. It wasn't. Oh. It was a trio. It was like a power oh, okay. trio, and they played like this death metal kind of shit, but with saxophone, drums, and bass, maybe something like that. Okay, all I really know of John Zorn is Naked City. It's yeah. back, like metal-ish, jazz kind of, of vibe. But I know, yeah, yeah, but it was yeah, it's like like sort of jazz sort of metal like it was loud it was yeah. it was insanely loud so oh you want to he wants you to sit in with him it'll be funny like vibes with this like ridiculously loud band so um 
I had this, usually I used to use a JC120 because it's super clean, you know? Mm -hmm. Guitarists hate it, most of them. But um, for, for jazz and for vibes, you want something clean. You don't want any color at all. So, um, but they didn't have one and they had me in this Fender <laughs> Twin Reverb or something. And I didn't really, I was just new to Amplify, so I didn't really, you know, know how to quickly, I had like two seconds to get my sound. So, okay, we're starting. Nah, fuck it. I just plugged in. And the thing, like, the gain was like on 10 or something. It's a loud amp. <laughs> it's a loud yeah, amp. And loud the amp. gain was like on 10. So I go to play, and it's like, woo! It's like feeding back. And I was like, and I start playing it because, you know, I play. It's like an audience of like, I don't know, thousands of people, you know. So I just start playing, you know. And I was like, I couldn't get it to stop feeding back. So I just like, fuck it. I'll just go with it, you know. I, I, and it's feeding back. And like, it was cool. And I start working <laughs> it, you know. And that's when I learned, oh, wow. And that, then I started using effects pedals with, with Groove Collective and, and playing with distortion. And it's, the vibes with distortion, it sounds similar to an electric guitar. It doesn't have the attack. It has more of a vibraphone attack. But the tone, when it, you know, and you get these long sustains, it'll sustain, especially my old Deacon, which already has a ridiculously long sustain for a vibraphone anyways. And we get, you could get these long sustains and... And, it was, and when you played like t intervals, you'd get all these weird harmonics, and mm. it was very cool. So, so I can, I can thank my experience with John Zorn for that because I, I probably would have never thought of doing that. It just That's happened wild. by accident, and the accident turned out to be. Ben. I didn't do any of that. They didn't want me to use an amp with Steely Dan. I had the vibes. I was like, it'll be a lot cleaner, <laughs> but they were kind of uh, stuck in there. <laughs> you know, they're. They're, they have their way, and, and when people have their way and they have success, they don't want to change anything. Well, now, when the, you were getting the complaints about adding stuff to the music, how did, like from the other band members, how did uh, Donald Fagan react? Did well, he? I would have been fired if, <laughs> if he didn't like it. So, so I remember that um, it was the end of the, the it was the end of the, the uh, Madison Square Garden show that he told me that, you know, oh, that the other band members are complaining, that this and that, uh, that he was going to talk to Donald and Walter and he'll let me know what, what the outcome was. So I was, I just knew, I figured, oh, I'm going to get fired. These guys got a lot more juice than I do. <laughs> Damn, I like this playing with this thing. So um, I was very depressed after that Madison Square Garden. I've never forget sitting in my hotel room on the floor, like totally depressed. And, uh, but then the next, the next rehearsal, I think we had a rehearsal that week or something. I don't remember. Well, maybe it's that sound check. I don't know. He came up to me and said, no, 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 don't worry about it. Um, you know, Donald, uh, uh they, they like what you're doing. Just keep doing what you're doing. I was like, yes! <laughs> Fuck you guys. <laughs> um, then they accepted me more. I, I started becoming more friendly with some of the guys in the band. Warren and I got along real well after after that. And they were like, oh, okay. Well, I guess Donald, they like what he's doing. Because I guess, you know, they had their rhythm section rehearsal and he was very strict about, super strict about what he wanted and the parts and they have to be exact. And, the, yep. you know, and then I come along, you know, I'm sure that's how it looked in their eyes in retrospect, you know, like I come along like, I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> I'm doing my own thing. <laughs> this is my band. <laughs> I had that attitude. <laughs> like Steely who? <laughs> and like like uh, this guy, um, Purdy, um, 
Bernard Purdy? Uh, Bernard Purdy said in an interview once, like, Steely who? Me and Larry Carlton. That's Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I have that attitude. This is my band now. But, um, but you got bring, bring in your signs like Billy Purdy did. <laughs> you did it. You hired yeah, the hit. That's, that's what I was. But, um, but it was, you know, great. Walter was really cool. He always liked me, and uh, we got along great. Well, Walter, and he was funny. He he was really, what a character. He would. He was so, that guy is such a genius, both of them. But um, Walter is so observant. I mean, and I, I thought. I thought I was getting over sometimes, but you can't get over on that guy. He knows every little thing. He's one of those guys that's like this, and he's watching you. <laughs> you know? yeah. he's, I see everything you're doing, dude. Oh, I'm watching. <laughs> you think I'm not watching you? I'm watching. One time we did a show in uh, in Seattle at the. Uh, do you know the the Gorge in George Washington? I do not. Beautiful venue, and you you play at sunset just so, and it's over like a canyon. George Washington is like mountains and it's a skewful, like it looks like the Grand Canyon almost. And the stage is here and that's the backdrop and the sunset is behind the band. Oh, wow. There's photos on the album, that's at the Gorge. Oh, this cool. is just the most beautiful venue. And we played there and it was super hot that day, which, you know, kind of rare for Seattle. This was like in the 90s, it's like high 90s. It was really hot, summer day. And I, I used to always wear a vest with no shirt and whatever. And you know, sometimes I wore, I used to wear these maxi skirts with cowboy boots <laughs> and uh, some other leather pants. Um, well, maybe the leathers came later. I don't remember. But any, I, I used weird, weird outfits I would wear, but usually a vest with no shirt. And then it was so hot that day. Like, I'm sitting in the dressing room. My cousin lives in Seattle. He was hanging out with me. And we're hanging out, you know, smoking weed. And, uh, and uh, it was so hot. I just had this, like, sleeveless T-shirt on, like a vest T-shirt and, and boxer shorts. And I'm getting ready to change into my outfit. And I look at my outfit and I look at what I'm wearing. I'm like, they're almost identical. <laughs> I was just as a goof. I'm going to go on stage in my underwear. So I did. I played on stage. <laughs> Walter did. Mr. I Don't Miss a Trick, he introduced me. And our great vibraphone player. You've seen him with Groove Collective, blah, blah, Tonight, the scantily cloud, Bill Webb. <laughs> <laughs> Bill wearing nothing. <laughs> that one, and my other favorite Walter int uh, um, introduction was um, who? Oh, Will's, he's a Bill script He's been doing a great job for us back there in percussion. And I tell you, this guy, when he starts from the way out and comes back in. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, what? <laughs> and I then I knew what he was talking about. He's talking and I had a featured solo on Sign in Stranger, you know that song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sign in Stranger. I had a featured solo and I and it's basically on a, like a C7 groove, you know, on a C7 um C7 sharp 9 kind of thing. Um so uh I would always start my show solo on the sharp nine, mm -hmm. you know, and it's a C, so you're, 
and like and I would sort of build my solo because sign in stranger the strangest note in you know on a C7 chord it's got to be the sharp you know the flat nine you know so I would play that flat nine C sharp right on bam start right there and that's where he got that from starts from the out and then I would work my way back in I was like man this guy is so he's so amazing yeah. <laughs> he would just, and it was always like that with him he would just he had these insights that were just what an amazing he was an amazing guy he, he I got a little closer with him um, in Japan. We went, we did two weeks or three weeks, two weeks, three weeks, uh, three weeks, I think it was in Japan. And um, some of the, one of the venues we played in, we had two nights in the same venue, which was odd, first of all. And then it was um, 1500 seater. Yet we, you know, we were making the same money there. So hmm. imagine how much those tickets were. And the same, some people paid for two nights. They paid for yeah. both nights, even though we were playing pretty much the same music both nights. They were like, hey, what, this is once in a lifetime champ. I mean, how many, that's probably right. They were right, too. I mean, they haven't gone back to Japan, I don't think, Steely Dan. So they knew it was a once in a so I can only imagine those tickets were probably $1,000 each or something. Okay. <laughs> well. Crazy. Um, yeah, no, I mean, so much cool stuff uh, yeah. I, I wish we had more time I know if we're going to have to get wrapping up kind of soon um, I mean let us, let us know at any point if, if you'd like to start um, but one of the topics I wanted to touch on while you're here um, is I mean like I said you you are on some very historically important hip hop albums um, and I was curious what your perception of of the culture of hip hop was as it was emerging and then what it was like um, kind of going between like the jazz scene and the hip hop scene and what kind of judgment you got on both sides Yeah, well, like for you know, mixing yeah, things yeah I did a lot of crossover stuff because you know like in the 90s the whole acid jazz thing was coming along and starting to mix uh, you know dance with DJs DJs were just coming into their own as kind of like being their own thing you know um and uh, nowadays, some of those DJs make a lot more money than musicians make. Yeah. Well, people but, were um, complaining, or people complain about DJs now, so I can only imagine back then uh, yeah, you were well, getting some shit for, for getting involved in scenes like that. Um, not so much, because everybody was, you know, you know, especially the jazz musicians are, are generally more open to, uh, you know, you got just some, some of the guys, you know, staunch kind of, I don't know, conservative musically. <laughs> we called them bebop Nazis. <laughs> they, they were still like, you know, they're, they're still a term, right? Yeah, Absolutely. they're still around those kind of like nothing else, anything else is crap. I was kind of in that camp. Um, but I was always open to a lot of different things, especially coming from the composer in me, curious about what makes something what it is, you know, what makes classical yeah. music classical, what makes country music country, you know what makes it you know those are scientific kind of things that that composers are interested in um but um so in that way most of the musicians certainly that i was dealing with like you know the avant-garde guys and and uh you know the uh, crossover people and the knitting factory scene was all of that um so that whole scene i was in was uh very open to so it's oh that's great that's anything you did was was cool so um 
So in that effect, it didn't, you know, I didn't see that much like flack from it. Never paid much attention to like music writers because half the time they don't seem to like know what they're doing even or what they're talking about. So I, I didn't, critics and all that. So I barely paid any attention to that. Although they seem to love us and they love me. And so I mean, Steely Dan, actually, a lot of the early critics, they, they got panned a lot of times. They're like, ah, they're just rehashing. Ah, it's just a cover band of their own music and you know, all those stupid comments. But but they loved me and they loved Drew Zing. <laughs> so yeah. we would get a lot of a lot of the good press would be like, but that Bill Ware and Drew Zing, what standouts, they were amazing. But, um, but uh, so I, I did a lot of that stuff. I played with all these, you know, Groove Collective kind of led to that because there were little breakdowns, you know, where we would do, I did a gig once with Kim Clark, bass player, sure. and uh, Rossell. Rozel from The Roots? Yeah, from oh, The Roots. Oh, shit, I didn't know that. Amazing. That guy's ridiculous. He's awesome, yeah, yeah. And we did this little gig. It was in this one this weird club where they had music downstairs and us on one other level and someone else on another level. And uh, it was just the three of us, and it sounded like a jazz quartet because he could do drums and um, like a, mute, uh, a Harmon mute trumpet like Miles. He uh-huh. could do them yeah, both yeah, yeah. at the same time. You ever heard a uh, question versus Razel off uh, the Roots' like first album? Uh-huh. It's like it's just him and, and Questlove playing drums, and he's right. doing like he's doing beatboxing, and he's doing like horn and bass lines yeah. with his voice, yeah, and he's doing like right. a James Brown impression. It's it's like it's ridiculous. All at the wow. same time, like like is that one person? It was like magic, but it's it was one of the coolest gigs I ever did. We it sounded so cool. It sounded like like. You know, it sounded like that man with the horn Miles record. It sounded oh. like that. Oh, it was just so, so cool. Um, so, and then our, those gigs were kind of fun, but, but after like, I don't know, a couple of years of that, man, especially me and my youth and my brash attitude that I used to have, <laughs> it's mellowed down now somewhat. <laughs> I hated rappers. I hate poets and I hate rappers because those are the most <laughs> full of shit dudes you ever want to meet talking about those brother brother stuff and then they turn around and rip you off for like 20 bucks <laughs> I mean there was some of the cheapest like Coochie Frito uh, Chitlin Circuit type mentality dudes I ever met and most of the time it was not you know I did some great stuff too with like people like Gary Glazer I don't know if you know him yeah. a poet um, we did a whole tour with at the Knitting Factory and Vibe Dodge Vibe. Remember the Dodge Vibe? No. It was a little minivan. It was called the Vibe. And so, <laughs> Dodge oh, vibe. Dodge came. Oh, why don't you take one of our vans and, and do a poetry <laughs> slam across the country with the vibraphone and the Vibe? Oh, what the, you know, like somehow Michael Dorf sold that. Michael Dorf could sell anything, but <laughs> he sold that too. And we, we went across the country. And Gary Glazer, I think, was the, the um, poet and announcer and, and MC. And uh, we had an engineer slash driver, uh, Ed Greer, who works with Michael for years, co- doing construction, sound, engineering, helping the sound, uh, building the, the new uh, city winery. Uh-huh. Was, but yep. yeah, he, he helped build the scent, do the sound there. And a great guy, uh, him and his, his wife, um, Sasha Von Ortson, um, she uh, was the engineer for many of the Vibes, Vibes records that I did on Knitting Factory because she worked as an house engineer for Knitting Factory for years and uh, also for Michael. So, um, so uh, 
I, I, they were on that thing, and that was fun. That kind of that poetry slam tour was really fun. But a lot of those poets, oh my god, talk about jive. That was like some of the worst experiences <laughs> I ever had. Poets and rappers and poets. So by by like a couple of years of that, and I was like. Don't even talk to me if you're a poet or a rapper. <laughs> yeah. and you guys are so full of it. I mean, blah, 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 blah. Now you're all talking. It's just like so jive. <laughs> but, you know, it's, that was a lot of my experience. But I did a whole bunch of things. Places, C.C. Peniston, um, David Byrne recorded on a record. Awful human being. That guy. Uh, like, my, the most, most hated celebrity. That's it. Uh, that guy. I, I know that name. I don't know. David Byrne? Talking, talking Heads? heads. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 I don't really know any Talking Heads. I'm good. <laughs> Awful music. Awful. I hate it. I hate that <laughs> kind of singing. <laughs> Awful. Um, but other people, you know, he was one of bad experience, but um, other people, great experience. Debbie Harry toured with her for years. She's great. Unbelievable. Just a quick story with her. Uh, we did a rehearsal. Uh, in the Lower East Side and um, she knew I was struggling financially at the time so she was like oh you know I drove my car to the to the rehearsal you want to put your vibes in, in the trunk and then I'll just bring them to the gig tomorrow I'll save you because I used to cart my I didn't have the uh, couldn't have my vibes where I was living as a fourth floor walk up or something tiny little apartment so I kept them in a storage place and that's where I also did my rehearsing and stuff so uh she said, uh, you know, it'll save you. And I had the vibes carded, you know. And she it'll save you cartage, you know. I was like, oh, great. Sure. Very nice. So we arranged, you know, time to meet and everything. And, and that was before cell phones and everything. I didn't have a cell phone. So I mean, that was like 95 maybe or something. I don't know. 97, something like that. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, I showed up like 10. I was 10 minutes late. And Debbie's very punctual, so. It was obvious. Oh shit! She's not. I'm standing out. It's Seventh Avenue South. I'm standing out for Seventh Avenue South. Uh, no car. Shit! She must have. Damn! I missed it. I'm probably have to go to the parking lot get the vibes. And I'm like thinking that right. So I go in the club. The vibes are on stage, set up. <laughs> no. She brought them in. I got the people help her set up. They were all set up for me when I got there. That's the kind of superstar yeah. she is you know and elvis Brody. another great guy i mean elvis and i oh, yeah, was just listening to the, uh, the jazz passengers track featuring elvis costello yeah, well, what was it called black velvet i think no no um with him and debbie doing a de duo no 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 think of me no he didn't record that uh, what's it called uh, i'm sorry I'm, I'm, i can't remember the name of the track but yeah yeah he sung he did a duo with debbie and we did that we ended up doing that i think on the letterman show um, oh, that's cool. I yeah, that was that. very cool. Um, wind Walked By. Yeah, the Wind Walked yeah. By, yes. He sung that one. But Elvis, amazing dude, and that guy was so funny. He's so busy all the time. He's one of his crazy guys. He keeps himself, like, insanely busy. And uh, he would always come into rehearsal, like, with his coat on. Like, uh, like rehearsal's at 9. It's, like, 8. You know, it's 8.59, and here comes Elvis. I'm oh, sorry I'm late, you know. He's taking off his coat like, oh, what are we playing? What, 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 what do you want us to do first? While well, he's taking his coat. Think of me? Okay, well, here we go. One, two, three, four. Think of me. And he goes, bam. Like, like, right on. I mean, he could, like, run in, you know, grab a quick drink of water, and bam, just, and be right smack on the note, like, 
yeah. every time and like every single time he was always like like two minutes before he was needed he was there <laughs> like just in time and okay here we go one two three bam that was like our oldest joke yeah for for years but not a great great guy really really talented amazing guy um another one of the albums i was curious about was a classic uh hip-hop album uh uptown saturday night by camp low um that's in the that's the that's in the i don't remember zone (laughs) (laughs) all right i did uh, you know at one point i remember i had done 50 cd i had done 50 sideman cds you know what i remember two of them (laughs) (laughs) one because of that awful experience with david byrne and where he ripped me off actually uh didn't pay me for the recording i did a whole album he didn't pay me guys the guys got problems (laughs) if you're listening i'm still mad at you (laughs) that wasn't even the worst of it the fact that he stole the music that i was recording from another vibraphone player ripped the recording off and then told me oh we just don't like her feel so we want you to replace her parts that she wrote actually and it was a i was a i ended up taking part in some musical theft and that really did not sit well i didn't find out for years later but that did not sit well with me that guy Not good. Fuck you, Dave Burns. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> I got my revenge on him one time. I because I, he, he rides a bike, you know, because it's too cheap to to use like a cab or anything. No. Millionaire riding a bike in Manhattan. <laughs> he passed me one time. I ride a bike too, but not for that reason. I was riding a bike because like I can't walk anymore. But and I spit right in his face. That was my moment of yes. There's my revenge. Just a regular day in New York. Talking head, meet the thousands he stole from me, but (laughs) it did give me some little yeah, it's the little seconds. It's the little things in life that you go, ah, yeah, I'll never forget that. Too bad there was no COVID then. (laughs) Right, there's a million dollar spit right there. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's literally too many amazing projects you've been a part of that I um, would love to talk about. Is Is there anyone that you you know to this day like still dream of working with or meeting or who is still keeping you inspired um i mean you got the mink and the monk podcast off your list what else (laughs) what else are you dealing with um oh i don't know i i not 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 really i mean you know i would love to do some more gigs with people like i i played with um i seem to play with band members band like people who are just right at the end of their career and i play with them and then they die so <laughs> that's not such a so we're not playing let that rumor out there. <laughs> nobody will hire me then but no but uh, i play with a great bass player mickey bass um he played with you know blakey and all these people i mean top level bebop guy and and uh that was a real pleasure um the band was amazing and uh great experience playing with people like that you know that I'd have been around, but there aren't that many of them left. You know, they're all they're, they're all old. They're so old now. But lots of people. I'm looking forward to uh, maybe playing with Joe Lovano some more. I, I'd, uh, he sat in with when Steve Williams, also a drummer. Mm-hmm. Tell you about he sat in that same gig at, at Barnstock. Um, uh, Joe Lovano sat in with us, and uh, 
Yeah, it's yeah. a super bad dude. Yeah, we played together a long time ago. We we played in a, a thing that with it was mainly the jazz, sort of like some of the jazz passengers guys. And we did an Eric Dolphy song, and uh, and Joe, they paired Joe up with us so he would have some people to play with, and uh, and we got to play together. Then that was a long time. It was like nineteen, I don't know, ninety five or something. The Knitting Factory's 20th anniversary or something. I don't know, like in 97, I don't remember when it was, but we got to play together then, and then not again until just this year. Barnstorm got to play, so I'm looking forward to, I'm hoping to record some of my, those original 200 songs. They're just aching to be recorded. <laughs> so I'm gonna do a record, hopefully of my own. Um, so I look forward to that. Um, but uh, yeah, it would be nice to, uh, um, I don't think it'll ever happen, but it'd be nice to play with Steely Dan again, you know? I mean, the, yeah. the new band is really cool. When we had it, it was just three tenors, you know? And they have the horn ring there with the, some uh, really great players there. That, that, that um, I certainly wouldn't turn that down if that yeah. opportunity came again. That music is just so much fun. Yeah. I've been playing with some local bands, though, some cover bands that, that cover some of that material, so that's been... Foray into, but mostly I've been playing the straight ahead stuff, so which is my love, you know, yeah, my original love. So, um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really mostly. I oh, you know, I, and, and oh, film scoring. I, I yeah. think next to playing just bebop with an amazing group is probably my first love, but my, I think my second love, or maybe even right along there with that, is film scoring. Film scoring is just like, you feel like a god when you're writing film, you know? You're writing music to a film, it's just like, it's such amazing work putting music to images and bringing, creating this musical world in this film that is its own world. It's, it's, it's just nothing more satisfying than that. And I, I got to do a silent film, which is, is like all music, none of this pesky acting and dialogue and yeah, yeah, yeah. sound effect garbage to get in your way. It's just your music <laughs> and the film, and it's fantastic. That's really like the epitome of it. And this music, this film was from 1928, I think. And it's, um, it's the, uh, it, it was it was a whole lot of things about that, that make an amazing mu movie the fact that it, it was directed and the script was written by women which is very rare in the 20s yeah. and uh, it featured uh, it was a full-length feature that that had a, uh, a woman as the main protagonist yeah. unheard of you know Pola Negri um, you heard of her she was the, the actress and the silent film actress that curl the black curl, they made the cartoon Betty Boop after oh, her. Oh, wow. Had, uh, yeah, Pola Negri is her name. She was a Polish actress <laughs> and uh, very famous in the silent film. She, I think she was partnered with um, her, I don't know if they were ever married, but she was with uh, Ruta Valentino. They originally made the movie Spanish Dancer for him, and then he couldn't do it because of contractual problems, and uh, they ended up reworking the, the script. They got a female writer, reworked the script, to be uh, about Polinegri to be the main protagonist. And all the men are very silly in that movie. It's a very subtly 2020s, but it's a feminist movie, really is. Mm. And they filmed the movie, I found this later, to music. What? They actually had, 
music played while they filmed it because they wanted it to have a musical sensibility, which makes it really easy to put music to because you can feel the tempo. That's the whole thing about scoring. You've got to feel the tempo of what's going on on the screen. And they cut, they edit movies to, to time. Right, so it's right. very timed and it's very much about timing. So once you get the timing of it, so, um, but I, so the writing, the, and then I found out later that I was like, why is, the timing seems really easy in this movie. I'm finding no problem finding the tempo of this, of these scenes. And there's some dance scenes, you know, mm -hmm. and there's nothing, you, you're like, but it could feel the tempo of it. And uh, that's why they, they, I found out later after I scored it <laughs> that they had yeah, yeah. filmed it two times. So I, was, I didn't wonder why it's so easy. Everything flows like, but an hour and 45 minutes of music. Oh my God. Wow. Months, months and months of writing. And I, well, like, for someone who composes 200 songs a year. Yeah, <laughs> dropping the bucket. No big deal. But it was, it was, that was really, uh, it's out, it should be, it's going to be out on Blu-ray um, soon. But it's called the Spanish Dancer. If you the Spanish Dancer. Yeah, the Spanish Dancer. I'll look for it. Um, Milestone Films. Okay. okay. And um, and so out of the albums that you you've uh, been the older albums that you've been releasing recently, what are some of the more recent ones? Or is there any in particular you want people to? Look? Yeah. Well, I did a whole. I did an acoustic jazz record, which is um, similar to uh, Chick Corea's acoustic band. I was trying to you know go in that vibe with the Ratso Harris, uh, Ratso B. Harris on bass, and uh, Steve Sandberg on piano, Steve Johns on drums, and myself on vibes. It's called Acoustic, um, Club Bird Acoustic. Um, that, uh, that record I released, uh, and that, that was pretty cool. And then I have an electric version that is all me, <laughs> um, called Club Bird Electric. <coughs> And um, that one I recorded in my home studio, overdub style, obviously, because you can't play more than one instrument at a time. Yeah. But um, that that one, uh, and uh, and then I have a whole bebop record that I did. Uh, Jamie Affamato on drums. He had a club in Brooklyn called Puppets Jazz Bar for a while. I'm wearing the Puppet Records. We had a record company together for a minute, and um, uh, that. Uh, we did a couple of records with uh, Arturo O'Farrell uh -huh. and uh, Alex Blake on bass, Jamie on drums, myself on piano. We did, and um, and and I mean on bass, I mean on vibes. And uh, Matt King also did one record with us uh, um, on piano. So uh, those records um, were fun to do, and uh, but I released a bunch of stuff just with no label. It's all on. You can find it on Spotify if you look for Billware. Yeah. So uh, slowly releasing that. I have a whole nother album, 51 Minutes of Madness, I did with my Urban Vibes, I call it group. That was a DJ. Started out with a DJ, a guitarist, me. Then I had a drummer that I was doing gigs with. He was like, oh, I want to come sit in. And he brought a percussionist. Sit in turned into the whole gig. Wow. <laughs> Every gig. We had a weekly gig at a place called the Ace of Clubs on like Jones Street in, in uh, St. Jones. Or I think that's the name of the... It used to be Acme Underground, and then it became the Ace of Clubs. And there was a Cajun restaurant above. Mm. Louisiana-style restaurant above. So we had a weekly gig there every Thursday, and I, I recorded it, and then 
I just finished, I just learned how to mix the last two years. I did, I've been studying engineering, mm -hmm. I learned how to mix and master. <laughs> so I mixed and mastered this after 2006, we recorded it. And it's taken me this 109 tracks. It's taken me this long to like get it all together. So I finally finished that. So that'll be releasing pretty soon too. 51 minutes of madness. 51 you minutes said? of madness. Okay. It's like we used to play continuous. We play for two, three hours straight, continuous music. Mark Rebo played with us, so we have a lot of guitars. Eventually, the band swelled up to be two drummers, DJ, vibes, guitar, bass, two singers. And one night we had five saxophone players. And a rapper. The jam. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, I, I, anybody could sit in, you know, and we were jamming along with the DJ, except the DJ spun music that the DJ and I yeah. put together during the, during the day. We would get together and we would put together like a playlist of music and make our own tracks. And he had Ableton Live, so he could, if there was a bass player, he'd just take the bass out. Very cool. Drummer, <clears throat> you know, whatever, he, whatever we needed. That was a cool, I want to revive that concept. Hopefully with another DJ. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm excited to hear the record when it comes out. I'm excited to hear the new Jazz Passengers record that you guys are about to make also. So I hope the listeners will keep an eye out for that. And just you have so much cool stuff out on the stre like streaming platforms. So yeah, anywhere, just look up Bill Ware and you'll find a lot of cool here. stuff. <laughs> um, Easily. I'm an aquarium. <laughs> next, 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 next. Um, but no, I really enjoyed researching your your work, and it's Ooh. such a fascinating career. And you're always welcome back um, to talk because I, I could keep going on. I have more questions. Yeah. But uh, sixty uh, years, you get a lot of stories after a while. <laughs> um, but seriously, man, it was it was an honor. Thank you so much Thank for coming you. to talk yes, to us. Thanks for doing it. Um, you know, follow Bill. Uh, you know, do you want Instagram or? YouTube particularly yeah my YouTube channel you know all the usual check him out subscribe to him subscribe to us like the video comment on the video um, and thank you for listening uh, yes it's been an honor Bill thank you again thank you thanks for having me thanks for doing it right. yeah. we do it yeah nope <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.